it will always serve us well to take time to consider Christ Jesus. If we take the exhortation seriously to run with patience the race that is set before us, we will immediately understand the importance of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As that text continues, we are to consider him. We are to think upon Christ. That we must, as God's people, not presume that we know enough about Christ. Leave that to the side and consider what it is to live as a Christian. To live as a Christian in church, in home and in society is to consider Christ. Thinking of Christ is fundamental to all Christian living. And so sometimes the temptation is, as God's people, to presume that we have the foundational doctrines established and therefore it's time to think about the practice To move on, as it were, to, well, how do we do all this Christian living? Oh, yes, there's a place for that. But we will not run with patience the race unless we properly and continually consider Christ Jesus. There is a problem in the heart of the child of God. If a sermon upon Christ is seen as being old and mundane and familiar, that ought never be our thinking. And so when I outlined Romans 9, 1 to 5 in my own preparation for these messages, I thought it would be helpful for us all to pause and consider the doctrine of Christ from verse number 5. It's one of those sections, clauses, that are there in the Word of God that really in, in a very condensed form summarize the nature of Christ's person and work. It's concise and condensed. And yet it contains so many principles regarding the person and work of our Saviour. It is vital that God's people know these truths. That they know them. That they can defend them. That they believe them each and every day of their lives. If you go wrong in these things, you go wrong to the loss of your soul. These things are of the utmost importance. I think again of our young people here tonight. Many of you, again, you're in your teenage years. You're at a time in your life when you must be clear as to what you believe. You must be clear as to being able to express what you believe. To defend what you believe. And again, tonight, I encourage you. I'm going to seek to come back to the first principles regarding who Jesus is and what he has done. Please. As I preach, ask yourself the question, would I have put it that way? Is that how I think about the Saviour? Is that how I describe the Saviour? Do I know these texts, these proof texts, these references? I encourage you, get out a pen and a piece of paper and write down the references and learn these things in your own mind tonight. Take this, you like, as a, as a basic class on Christian doctrine regarding the person of Christ Jesus. Let me put it to you another way, young people. When you come to the point you're considering marriage and a spouse, do they understand these things? Can they explain these things? Can they defend these things? If they can't, you have a major, major problem before you get married. That's how fundamental and important these things are tonight. The privileges of the Jews are listed We have that again, verse number 4 and 5. We went through these things a few weeks ago. We saw the various privileges of those who are called Israelites. They are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. This list list of privileges ends 
with the blessing of the Messiah that came in the line of the Jew. As it says here in verse number 5, Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. He came in the fulfillment of these promises that are mentioned in verse number 4. The covenants and the promises that pertain to the coming Messiah. Christ, of course, the word that is used here is New Testament equivalent of the word Messiah. He is the promised Redeemer. And I mentioned this morning that there's been controversy in this verse regarding the usage of the various punctuation marks. Now, we will quickly get to Christology, the doctrine of Christ, but we need to spend a little bit of time regarding grammar. There are these punctuation marks used in our authorized version. You'll see them there. As concerning the flesh, Christ came, comma, who is overall, comma, God blessed forever, period. Those punctuation marks have been supplied by the translators of the authorized King James Version. There are no punctuation marks in the original. And so therefore, there's always been some question as to, well, how do you punctuate this particular section? Some people say there are potentially seven different possibilities. But I'm not going through all seven of those possibilities. But I will mention that there are two that are particularly troublesome. Because the issue at stake is to whether or not the word God refers to Christ. That's the issue at stake. That's the issue as to how various textual traditions and translations understand the structure of this verse. One translation puts it this way. Of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh? Period. They stop the section there after Christ concerning the flesh. Then continue, He who is over all God be blessed forever. Amen. So they have the two sections, who is over all and blessed forever, relating to God, again, in a sense of the doctrine of God, but not relating to the Christ. And the period, again, we don't see it in our, in our translation, the structure here. They're saying, of whom concerning the flesh, or of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh. Others put it this way. Of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh, comma, who is over all. Well, that's somewhat better. They at least acknowledge the fact that Christ is indeed over all. But they then put a period after that. So it's, of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh, period, who is over all, sorry, comma, who is over all, then period, God be blessed in the ages, or God be blessed forever. But in these two sections, these two references, these two illustrations, translations, God is separated from Christ by the use of period. As if God is the one who is to be praised, which of course is true, but denying the fact that Christ is this God. It's a subtle attack. Again, upon the nature of Christ's person. Well, I can assert, very gladly assert here tonight, that the punctuation of our King James Version is good and reliable, sensible and grammatically correct. Let me give you just some reasons for that. To relate God blessed forever to Christ is consistent with the rest of the scripture. 
that the Christ is God manifest in the flesh. The mystery of godliness. If that is the testament of the word of God elsewhere, why not also here? See, one of the issues we face in the debates regarding textual criticism and modern versions is that those who purport to delight in modern textual criticism and modern versions, they will say, oh yes, we see there are some verses that are challenging, but the doctrine of Christ's deity is still in our modern versions. But you know, you take one brick out of the foundation and you're weakening the foundation. Every text that proves the deity of Christ is there for a reason. And we are not at liberty to remove one of those texts or to, if you like, accommodate in punctuation to somewhat deny the deity of the Savior. The New Testament and the Old Testament is clear that the Messiah is indeed God manifest in the flesh. There's another issue, though, and that is the phrase, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Even the language there indicates to a simple reader, well, there must be more about Christ than simply that that concerns the flesh. If you like, we're only flesh. There's nothing more needs to be said about us. But when it comes to Christ, it's not enough to say simply uh, that he's in the flesh. There's more that must be said. The, the very physiology begs more. And to stop with a period after concerning the flesh, Christ came. Again, it doesn't make sense even in simple English. But let me show you that in a, in a proof text. Back over in, uh, forward sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a very... A very close parallel in the New Testament scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 16. Well, let's read in verse number 15. And that he that is Christ died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. My Paul is referring there to the fact that those who are saved, if you like, they are to those who have been saved and they are spiritual. They're not only known in terms of their flesh, the existence, their background, their, if you like, their heritage, those things. And then he continues. They, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh. And that's the very same structure as you have in Romans chapter 9. Known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now henceforth know we him no more. And what he's saying there is that we knew Christ according to the flesh, but now he has risen again, verse number 15. There's more to Christ than simply the flesh. We knew him according to the flesh, but now we see him as the risen Lord. And more than that, verse number 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So my point is that when Paul used this terminology, according to the flesh, he's, he's begging the reader to consider, well, what's more? There must be more. It's not just that he's in the flesh. There must be more regarding the Savior. And here in 2 Corinthians, he is risen and he is God. To use Paul's words in Romans chapter 9, he is over all and he is God blessed forever. So you see the parallel here. Again, the two, it's, very, it's very same two things. He's overall, he's risen, he's God, 
He's God blessed forever. There's one other thing. So the first reason is consistent with the rest of Scripture. The second reason is the language of us concerning the flesh. And the third reason, and this again I accept, is, is well beyond my competency. So I mention it to you and then I'll move on. There are those experts in the Greek who argue that the grammar here of uh, Romans 9 verse 5 is similar in structure as to other doxologies. And those other doxologies, the things that are praises to God, they do not permit an insertion of period in the structure. And so if you like the, the entire antecedent, the bit before the God blessed forever, it all, all encompassing. It's all included. The doxology includes all that comes before it. And I say it beyond all remit tonight. I won't trouble you with it. It's beyond my competency regarding the Greek language as well. But my point is very simple. This whole phrase and clause speaks of Christ Jesus. That's just what I want you to see. I want you to understand there's a debate out there. There's discussions and arguments. But it all speaks of Christ Jesus. Please bear with me. I'm going to read a relatively lengthy quotation from Robert Haldane. Uh, again, the uh, theologian who's written a very helpful commentary in Romans. He says this. The awful blindness and obstinacy of Arians and Socinians, and those are people who denied the deity of Christ, in their explanations or rather perversions of the word of God, are in nothing more obvious than in their attempts to evade the meaning of this celebrated testimony to the Godhead of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those modern scholars who seek to stick in a period here or there are joining in fellowship with the Arians and the Sassanians. Well, he continues. They often shelter themselves under various readings. But here they have no tenable ground for an evasion of this kind. Yet strange to say, some of them have, without the authority of manuscripts, altered the original in order that it might suit their purpose. There is no difficulty in the words, no intricacy in the, in the construction. Yet by a forced construction and an unnatural punctuation, they have endeavoured to turn away this testimony from its obvious import. Contrary to the genius and idiom of the Greek, contrary to all usual rules of interpreting language, they substitute God be blessed for God be blessed forever, or God who is overall be blessed, instead of who is overall God blessed forever. Such tortuous explanations are not only rejected by a sound interpretation of the original, but manifest themselves to be unnatural, even to the most illiterate, who may exercise an unprejudiced judgment. You say, why am I reading this long quote? Because I want you to appreciate the weight of this. Attacks upon the dead of Christ must not be tolerated. We've got to stand against them. We've got to realize this is a precious text. Or as Haldane says, a celebrated text. Well, finally, he continues this way. The scriptures, and this is helpful. The scriptures have many real difficulties. Which are calculated to try or to increase the faith and the patience of the Christian. And are designed to enlarge his acquaintance with the word of God. By obliging him more diligently to search into them and place his dependence upon the spirit of all truth. He says, yeah, there are hard ones. There are some genuinely hard parts of scripture. But he says this. But when language so clear as in the present passage is perverted. 
To avoid recognizing the obvious truth contained in the divine testimony, it more fully manifested the depravity of human nature and the rooted enmity of the carnal mind against God and the grossest works of the flesh. This refers to Christ Jesus. He is over all. God bless forever. Amen. And so in light of that, please, consider first of all the person of Christ in this text. You know this. But again, please remember, and we've just noted already that the word God here refers to Christ as concerning the flesh. Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. This text speaks of Christ in his pre-incarnate state. He is indeed the eternal son of the eternal God. You will note here again that in our authorized version, again very helpfully, the translators have supplied the word came. It's in the italics. As concerning the flesh, Christ came. But of course that is the very import of the reference. That coming in flesh, Christ came. That in taking flesh, Christ did not begin. Praise God, our translators believed in the doctrine of the eternal Son of Christ. And as they considered the coming of Jesus concerning the flesh, they understood it required an English The insertion of the word came. Christ Jesus did not begin in flesh. He came in flesh. It is an implied understanding of his pre-incarnate state. The question is begged. From whence did he come? Well in his own language he says in John chapter 6. For I came down from heaven. Not to do mine own will. But the will of him that sent me. Please, imagine yourself. You're standing beside the Sea of Galilee. You've just received the feeding of that bread. You're part of that 5,000 who received the bread from the hands of the Savior. And you hear his words. They're echoing like over the valley. And you're hearing his words. And he says, I came down from heaven. Could you say that again, please? That, that's not an ordinary phrase. There's tremendous surprise in that phrase. What are the possibilities? Oh, he must be an angel. Angels are in heaven. If he's come down from heaven, he, he must be an angel. Or, or perhaps he's a resurrected prophet. Perhaps it's Enoch or Elijah or another prophet that's come down from heaven. These are the only possibilities. Surely one coming from heaven must be a resurrected saint or an angel. What other explanation could there be? Again, you'll see those very thoughts are the thoughts contained in the gospel. But of course, the Lord does not claim to be an angel. Does not claim to be a resurrected prophet. He claims to be the prophet, the messenger of the covenant, the great I am. Before Abraham was. I am. See, John explains that for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Again, it points to the fact that Christ Jesus, in terms of his person as the eternal Son of God, pre-exists time itself, pre-exists creation. He's there in the beginning. He's there before creation. 
the word that was then made flesh and dwelt among us. His glory is the glory. Not glory that comes from the Father, but the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, co-eternal and quick with the Father. This is the one who comes in flesh, the one who has seen God, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. This is the pre-incarnate state of Christ. He came. Again, please turn across briefly to Philippians chapter 2. Again, young people, let me give you help when you come to think of the doctrine of Christ. If someone says to you, well, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Keep in your mind, always turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's a very good place to start. What do we believe concerning Christ Jesus? Verse number 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Here's a description of his pre-incarnate state. He's in the form of God. What is the form of God? God is a spirit and God dwells in light, unapproachable. That is the person of the Son of God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And the second person, the Godhead, has the very form of God. Co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent with the Father. Of whom it is said, again in verse number 5, that he thought not robbery to be equal with God. Now you see the statement that he, he did not have steal equality with God. Equality with God was his rights. It is a simple statement. Simple in language yet profound and in a way that we can understand that he is the eternal son of the eternal God. He's in the bosom of the father rejoicing always before him. Proverbs chapter 8. His pre-incarnate deity. And yet, in our text in Romans chapter 9, it also refers to his incarnate humanity. As concerning the flesh. Now, I will acknowledge this phraseology of concerning the flesh speaks to Christ's coming in a Jewish lineage. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. That's why it refers to his fleshliness in this section regarding the privilege of the Jew. Jesus was their Messiah. Their Christ. But this language of coming in the flesh is of course taken by Paul and used to refer to Christ's true and full humanity. You go back to Romans chapter 1 verse number 3. Again we have Paul stating the doctrine of the gospel. He's set apart verse 1 to the gospel of God. The gospel promised by the prophets. What's that gospel about? It concerns his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was born in Bethlehem, the place that indicated without any doubt that he was of the seed of David. Mary and Joseph's lineage points to that truth, but he came in the flesh. You think of that early Christian creed or perhaps a Christian hymn. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. For as much then, 1 Peter 4, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Or Romans chapter 8, you're there. So please turn to Romans chapter 8 and the verse number 3. Where it says, what the law could not do, 
end that was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, in the flesh but without sin, he's in the likeness of sinful flesh that he could die for sin and thus condemn sin in the flesh. You know, when you think of Christ in his incarnation, he takes to himself a true human nature, a true human body, a reasonable human soul. He takes humanity to union with deity and he comes into this world as our redeemer and as our reconciler. Those are two good words to have in mind when you think of Christ's humanity. He was born to die. He is the redeemer. He has made a curse for us. He's born. He's made of a woman to redeem us who are under law. Galatians chapter 4. He is our redeemer and he is our reconciler. Again, we saw the reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, he came in the flesh, but it was God in the flesh reconciling the world to himself. He is our redeemer and our reconciler. He is truly God, fully God and fully man. And he brings these things together in one person whereby he lays his hand upon God and man and reconciles us to God's. This is the saviour of sinners, the person of Christ Jesus. But the second thing to note, please, is the power of Christ, the power of Christ. Again, it's in our text. And it's in that language who is over all. It refers to the dominion of our Saviour. A dominion that is now and yet not yet. He has dominion now in his resurrected and ascended glory. Matthew chapter 28, all power is given unto me. He is the one who holds all dominion. As he dies upon the cross, what does he do? He defeats principalities and powers. He makes a show of them openly. He triumphs over them in his cross and he secures the authority as the king of kings and the lord of lords. You think of our reference in Philippians chapter 2. He is obedient to death, the death of the cross, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him. He is indeed over all. That's still true tonight. He is still over all. He has not ceased being over all. The power that he refers to as he ascends to glory is still his power. It is still his authority. Is he please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. You see, if you're going to defend the doctrine of Christ Jesus, oh, you must explain his person, his work. You must explain the fact that he's God and man. You must talk about his coming into this world. You must talk about his incarnation, his life, his miracles, his teaching. You must talk about the cross. But all of this culminates in his resurrection and his ascension. Whereby he is indeed over all. And so Hebrews chapter 2, as the writer refers to the Psalm 8. How mankind is made a little lower than the angels. And that was true of the Saviour. Verse 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. If I can insert this as concerning the flesh, he takes on true humanity. He becomes a man. And yet this man, this second Adam, is now crowned with glory and honour. 
and it set him over the works of thy hands. Of course, it refers initially to Adam. Adam was placed in his unfallen state, in a position of dominion, but through the sin and through the fall, he's put out of the garden. But Christ, he has regained dominion, and he is indeed over all things. And so Ted continues, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Satan is under him now. All demons are under him now. All humanity is under him now. The kings of this world are under him now. There's nothing that's not under him now in his reign. And yet it says this, But now we see not yet all things put under him. What is that all about? Is he, is he over all or is he not over all? Well, what you see here is that he is indeed over all. But the battles continue in this world. And for a season, he is long-suffering to a wicked world, not willing that any should perish. And so for a season, these battles continue. The devil still prowls as a roaring lion. But yet Christ is still over all. You see, his triumph is now and not yet. He is truly over all. And yet his kingdom is coming, it is growing, it's extending until the not yet. When he shall return and renew creation fully and defeat the final enemy, even death itself. Do you get to the point when the seven angels sounds in Revelation chapter 11 and there are great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. He came. He died. He conquered Satan. The decisive victory is won upon the cross. And he now reigns until all things are put under his feet. Until that last enemy, death itself, is under him in the resurrection. This is the power of Christ Jesus, according to the word of God. But finally, think of the praise of Christ. One last reference in our, in our verse is this. Christ came who is over all, God blessed forever. I remember when I was a, a younger person reading that little phrase at the end of this section. And I wonder for a long time, does it refer to the fact that Christ was blessed by God? Is it blessed in the sense of the Beatitudes? That he is the righteous man that walks in the law of God and therefore is blessed of God? Well, in a sense, there's truth in that. Christ is indeed one who's been blessed of God. He shall see the trial of the soul and shall be satisfied. Christ in glory tonight is perfectly happy, perfectly blessed, perfectly content. One man puts it this way. Accordingly, he abides perpetually in complete ecstasy, tranquility, honor, praise and glory, blessed forever. Amen. The Son of God has joy as sinners repent. He delights as the eternal plan of God is executed. 
as the Spirit's effectual work is manifested. He delights in all of these things. There is Trinitarian blessedness in glory tonight. But the word that's used here is not that word that's used in the Beatitudes. It's not that word that refers to blessed are those. That word is usually used for those who are in receipt of some privilege. It is used in two places for God. But the word that's used here is a compound word that brings together two Greek words referring to good words. And so the reference here is, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, worthy of good words forever, worthy to be praised forever. God who is blessed in that sense. And of course, that word is used in our Bibles many times. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel is worthy to be praised, worthy to be blessed, because he visited and redeemed his people. Luke chapter 1, 68. Or the section we read in 2 Corinthians tonight. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of mercies, the God of comfort is worthy to be praised. Folks, the doctrine of Christ must move our hearts. It must be explained to our heads. When you are asked, who is Jesus Christ? You must use words to explain who Jesus Christ is. He is not just a nice, funny feeling you have in your heart. You cannot understand or explain Christianity as an experience. It must be explained in terms of the person of Christ Jesus. But the doctrinal understanding of the gospel must move our hearts. And we can be well versed regarding who Jesus is and what he has done. But be completely unmoved in our souls. Is it any wonder that the hymn writer says this? Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation. Perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory. Till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love and praise. I, I get that. It is the sense of the hymn writer that we've got to wait to then before we're truly lost in wonder, love and praise. I feel that. But surely by the grace of God and by the help of the Spirit of God, we can know something of this in this world. The truth is the truth. The Spirit of God is the powerful Spirit of God. And as the Spirit of God applies truth to our souls, it moves our hearts and we'll be those who will, by God's grace, be lost in wonder, love and praise. Not perfectly, not to the fullness, but truly and at least in part. And if that is not the case, then we have not the same Spirit of Paul. Because he says, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God, worthy to be praised, blessed forever. And to that sentiment, Paul says, Amen. 
He is worthy of praise. And I add my amen to that statement. Let it be so. It is true. So the Apostle Paul says to his readers and to us tonight. Jesus Christ must be praised in our souls. We must join the heavenly host. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I, I worry in my soul. And so often we, we, we use biblical and theological language to explain the person of Christ. And yet we really struggle. In public worship and in private prayer. To really say worthy is a lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and glory and strength and blessing. We know it up here. But it's so difficult to live in that spirit day by day. We wrestle. We fight with the world, the flesh and the devil. And these things that crowd in upon us, they squeeze our heart to such a degree that we cannot really express what we ought to express regarding Christ Jesus. That's why you need to be in the Word every day. You need to look for Christ in the Word every day. You need to dig deep in the Scriptures. Where is my Savior? Where can I see Him? Where is Him whom my soul loveth? I go out to find Him. And yes, when I find Him, how my soul delights when I find Him whom my soul loveth. Oh, may by God's grace these things be our portion tonight. That as we consider the doctrine of Christ, we would indeed respond in believing worship, praising our Savior, Praising our God, the glory of our God, the greatness of our God, for the grace of our God. He has loved me with an everlasting love. I really hope by God's grace that you understand who Christ is. Very God of very man. I pray that by God's grace you understand the importance of the cross and the triumph of Christ in the cross. But above all that, I pray that by God's grace you love Christ. That he and the consideration of who he is moves your soul. You know, because if you love Christ, no other love, no other love will push Christ out of your heart. He is precious to me. I thought tonight we'd close with a closing hymn. And we're going to sing hymn number 33. And certainly my desire that we sing this hymn, I'll be able to sing it in truth, that would be the expression of my heart, there is no name so sweet in earth, no name so sweet in heaven, the name before his wondrous birth, to Christ the Saviour given. We love to sing of Christ our King, and hail him blessed Jesus, for there's no word he'd ever heard so dear, so sweet. As Jesus. Please stand together and maybe sing this with our hearts to the Lord's praise tonight.
possess our hearts. O oh Lord, may Christ be precious to our souls tonight. May we delight in the Savior. May we love him with all of our hearts. Grant us grace. Help us to put away every sin. Help us, O oh God, to remove any idol from the throne of our hearts. That Jesus and Jesus only will be the light of our souls. Bless this congregation. Keep us, O God, in the days to come. May we walk in thy fear and know the favour of God to be upon us. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.